If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 7, picking up where we left off last week with the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> going through the book of 1 Peter as we have been these last several weeks. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 7. That should be behind me if you don't have that in your Bibles. <clears throat> Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Marriage is not easy. Well, if you're trying, marriage isn't easy. Getting married, that's not that hard, right? You say some vows, eat some cake, sign a form, and you're done. Staying married even isn't that hard in the most technical sense. You can be miserable and still be married. You can live somewhere else with someone else and still technically be married according to the stay and the vows you once took. But we can all surely see that that's not how marriage is supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to operate. And we might think, we might hope and assume that marriage is hard for everyone else, but not for Christians, right? Surely we have this whole thing figured out. It's all smooth sailing on the love boat for us. But as I said, the, the harder you try, the harder it often seems. Even the titans of the faith, people we would hold up as Christian heroes, they weren't all good at marriage. William Carey, the, the first missionary in the modern missions movement, he almost left his wife and kids behind in England when he went to India because she did not want to go. She wasn't with him. He was on the boat, on his way there, and they stopped because she changed her mind and decided to come join him. Now, maybe he's just a devoted missionary. Maybe he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing and she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing. Maybe that's true. Or maybe they're just a terrible husband and wife. John Wesley, the brother uh, of Charles, founder of the Methodist movement, he left his wife at home while he preached his circuit, while he was gone so often, so many times, so many days, they hated each other. There was borderline abuse going both ways. He once wrote a letter to her and said, if you were buried just now, or if you had never lived, what loss would that be to the cause of God? Yeesh. That does not sound like marriage as it is intended to sound. The realities of marriage can be hard to grasp sometimes. It can be hard to enact sometimes. So before we get into anything today, let me just begin by reminding us of the grace of God toward his people. If you are anything like me as I was writing this, you're going to hear so much of what gets said today, and you're going to be able to list all the times, 
All, all the ways that you don't do what Peter is telling us to do here. And God sees that and God knows. But he's paid for those sins. The blood of Jesus is absolutely enough to cover the sins that you've committed, even the sins that you've committed against your spouse. And there are many. So let's just begin today by acknowledging from the get-go that there's no one in this room who is just nailing this. We're not perfect. If we were, Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins. If we were, we wouldn't have had to repent and believe. We wouldn't be Christians. So our imperfection is what brought us here. So let's remember that and remind ourselves of that as we're thinking of ourselves and our own marriages in this room through this sermon. Let's be grace-filled people today as we're reminded of all the ways that our grace-driven effort falls so short of God's perfection. Today, Peter, Scripture, gives us a picture of how husband and wife should relate to each other. If we could all follow this pattern of mutual service to each other within our roles, then I think our marriages would look quite different. Our marriages would be a lot better. So here in today's text, we're going to see seven points, yes, seven points, on mutual service in Christian marriage. We'll try to get through that before the Titans game is over at 3.30. The first point on mutual service in Christian marriage from today's passage is that wives should submit to save. You should submit to save. Look at the, the first two verses here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice the, the progression here in Peter's letter. He's gone from all people everywhere submitting to human institutions, to the government, to slaves submitting to their masters, and now he's talking about the concept of Christian marriage, how wives should likewise submit to their husbands. That The submission isn't the same across the board. Wives and husbands are different than slaves and masters and you and the government. But he begins by saying, likewise, because he's still on the theme of submission in the Christian life. That's still what he's talking about today. So in today's sermon, I'm going to follow Peter's lead here. He's assuming a certain structure to marriage, something that we would call complementarity. The man leads with a role of headship, and the woman follows with a role of submission. That's the biblical picture of how marriage is supposed to operate. So I'm going to assume that today. There, there will be a time, I'm sure, when I may argue for that from Scripture, where I'll talk about the dynamics of that a little bit more. But today, along with Peter, I'm just assuming that basic structure of headship and submission so that we can focus on his point, which is really how we should live with one another as Christians within that structure of headship and submission. Let me also point out here that though he's assuming headship and submission for how he commands the husband and wife, he doesn't do that naively. I think there's a reason he says some things he does and where he puts this, that we should remember the fullness of his argument rather than just focusing on the details, rather than thinking about this section on wives and husbands without any of the context around it. He's already said, your government may not treat you perfectly. Your master may not treat you perfectly. But now that we get to marriage, the one who is supposed to love you and serve you, he still acknowledges here that they may not treat you perfectly as well. The woman may not nail submission. The man may not nail headship. But he's guiding us in how to approach one another in a Christian way, how to 
show what our posture should be toward one another. So I'm assuming that complementarian structure of marriage in this text, but it's also there, right? Like he starts that way. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. It's just not argued. It's not reasoned. It's just commanded. He says, likewise, on the same theme of submission that he's been talking about, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to them. He doesn't feel the need to to go back and to, to back himself up to support himself, to give a thousand caveats that submission doesn't mean the woman is lesser. He doesn't have to go into all of that because he assumes that that's true. He's assuming that he's going to show, even as he says later in the verses, that that the woman is not lesser, yet she does still have to submit. He still commands submission and service for the wife toward the husband. So I say that because we shouldn't hear this concept of headship and submission and cringe. We shouldn't think about headship and submission and assume it's just code, different language for authoritarian abuse and battered surrender. The way of submission, that's the way of the Christian. That's what we've seen these last few weeks. You cannot live the Christian life without submission. You are to submit to the earthly authorities, to be subject to the emperor, to be subject to your master. That's how we live It's the way that we are supposed to be. It's the way of Christ. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. The he is Jesus. The the them is Joseph and Mary, Christ's earthly parents. So Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was submissive to his earthly parents. He lived as a man within the human family structure, submitting to his parents because that's what children do. So that means that there's nothing about submission just in and of itself as a concept that should make us jump to and assume that it's a bad thing, that it's a lesser thing. No, 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 it's a Christian thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's, It's what we do. We especially shouldn't shrink back from the idea of a wife's submission when we, when we see the reason for it here. So that even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your pure conduct. So he's saying, yes, you do submit, but you don't just submit for submission's sake just to check the box. Though it is commanded by God, though you should, He's saying you submit to your husband because something about your submission to him shows Christ to him. Peter's saying that you should submit not only to the ones who are Christians, hopefully the the good ones, the best ones. He's saying that even the non-Christians, the ones who are less likely to do what he's telling husbands to do here later, they should also be submitted to as well. Because when they see your pure conduct, it gives them a testimony about who Christ is and what he can do in the lives of his people, even without you having to say anything about it. Just as Christians should be honorable among the Gentiles for their salvation, and servants should obey their masters, even the bad ones, a Christian wife submits to her husband, even the non-believing husband, so that he might be one to the word he currently disobeys. You submit, but you submit in order to save. 
But wives here also are to focus on an inward identity. That's the second point on mutual service in Christian marriage. Wives focus on an inward identity. That's what you should be focusing on. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He's saying that when you think about your value, when you think about what makes you beautiful, your first thought shouldn't be to the external, to your hairstyle, to your jewelry or your clothes. It should be to the heart, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Because that evidently is what in God's sight is very precious. And I have to clarify here because I think we often hear people make these verses say something that they don't actually say. This doesn't mean that the Christian woman can't wear jewelry. This doesn't mean that the Christian woman can't take care of her hair. She has to have the worst possible hairstyle that she can think of. If the things he mentions here are just off limits, that you can't wear jewelry, that you can't adorn yourself, what do we do when we get the clothes? Okay, you need those. Those are not off limits. Those are actually commanded. Those are required of you now. It is very hard for you to live a, your life as a Christian woman without clothing. You're not going to be able to do it. So we can't take that same standard and then say, therefore, no jewelry. Therefore, no hairstyle. His point is that those things, they're not what truly adorn you. Those things aren't what highlight what is actually beautiful about you. He's saying that when you think about what you can do to make yourself more beautiful, your mind shouldn't first go to highlights. It should go to your spirit. It should go to your feminine inner qualities, gentleness, calmness. Because that kind of beauty, that's imperishable. There will come a day when the external beauty you have will fade. But gentle, calm, those things never go out of style. Those things never fade. They're always seen. They're always identified as beautiful. And God calls these things very precious. So I think Peter is hitting on something important about marriage because if not, this feels kind of random, right? It's Peter's fashion column in the middle of his letter. He's somehow expanding into an emerging market, diversifying his writing portfolio. He had some thoughts on the current fashions in the realm and just decided to put them in the middle of his letter written to the church. It would feel out of place unless he's hitting on something just intrinsic about marriage. So then what does jewelry have to do with submission? Well, I think this can remind us of something that we often forget. God is focused on the heart where man looks at the outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So I think Peter is saying this specifically just after the submission thing, because if you are not careful, what your husband thinks about you becomes the sum total of who you are. If you think of yourself as a wife who is submissive, and you take that and you turn it up a little bit too high, 
you're going to end up in a place where the only opinion that matters for you is his, where there's nothing you would not do to make him happy. If you take submission too far, if you make winning him over your whole personality, then there is never going to be something that you would not pursue toward that end. But the one thing you won't pursue toward that end is that which in God's sight is very precious. Man looks at the outward appearance. If your whole goal is to make man happy, then there are no physical links you won't go in your pursuit of that bozo's happiness. So Peter gives you this reminder for how you should move forward, that yes, you submit to him. Yes, you serve him. But more than that, you submit to God. More than that, you serve him. Your husband, he, there may come a day where he focuses on the wrinkles, where he focuses on the shapes, but God is focused on the heart. So submit, serve, but pursue that which God says is very precious. Focus on your inward identity, and God will open your husband's eyes to see that, even if it's on the last day. Peter's asking women to do something here that is fearful. That's the third point on mutual service in Christian marriage from our text. Wives, do that which is fearful. Look at verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. He's saying this is simply how Christian women conduct themselves. This is how you live your life. You have examples in Scripture of women putting these ideas into practice. Peter didn't make this up. This is the old-fashioned, the Old Testament way of being a Christian wife. And it's still in effect, Peter's saying. But notice how he characterizes what they were doing. This is how the ones who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So when you obey what he's saying, when you submit to your husband, when you focus on your inward, your Godward identity, that is an act of you actually putting your hope in God. These women that he's pointing to, the, the women of old, they didn't do this. They didn't submit to their husbands because they believed that their husbands were just superior to them intellectually, just superior to them spiritually. No, they submitted to them because they were confident that God would reward all those who put their trust in him, all those who obey and serve and love him. Your mutual service in Christian marriage of submitting to your husband actually shows that you have faith in God trust and hope in God, that these acts that you're committing of submitting to your husband, that those don't fall on deaf ears in God's presence. And we can draw all these same ideas from the example that Peter uses, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Let me just quickly point to three verses that make Peter's choice of Sarah actually really important, I think. First of all, look at uh, Genesis 12, 11. These all should be on the screen behind me says this, when he was about to enter Egypt, he, Abraham, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. So you see, Peter isn't aiming for homely here. He's not saying the Christian woman cannot be beautiful. He's saying that she is beautiful and her beauty may not be understood or recognized or seen by the regular man who only looks at the outward appearance. He's not denigrating beauty and appearance because evidently Sarah had that. 
She is an example of attractive, but with the proper adornment, evidently. So the Bible here is not anti-beauty. I think that's important for us to remember, as he's just giving you instructions on the way in which your beauty is supposed to be put forth and enacted. Look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? See, this is when she's told that she's going to bear her son Isaac. Okay, she is old at this time. She is way past childbearing years. And Abraham at this point, Hebrews tells us that he was as good as dead. Very old, way past childbearing years. So the the concept of God's plan that she hears, that she is going to bear a child now at this point, she hears and it's laughable to her. It's ridiculous to her. She says, God, you think children are coming out of this? You think any seeds worth planting are coming out of him? She's mocking God's plan, which, you know, that's not commendable. That's not why she's being commended in the, these verses in 1 Peter. That's not why she's the example here. But this actually is the verse where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, where she calls him Master. You see, even in her derision, she paid respect to her husband. She thought of him in that way. It was her default posture toward him is that I submit to and love and serve him, my husband. Then finally, let me point out Isaiah chapter 51, verse 2. It says, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Galatians, it picks up this same theme and says that all Christians have Sarah as our covenant foremother, just as we have Abraham as our covenant forefather. So you are her children if you follow her pattern of submission to her husband. That's why he picked Sarah. It's actually really important for this passage. He could have chosen dozens of other women from Scripture, but he chose her, I think, for these reasons. But don't miss how Peter ends his instruction to wives. He says, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think he's acknowledging the risk here. He's saying, I get, this is a scary concept. Submission to your husband, particularly here, the one who straight up is not doing as God commanded. That's scary. That's risky. It's costly. The CDC today says that one in three women, one in four men, have experienced physical violence from their partner. Men who do not follow the ways of Christ, even if it's just for that one moment, men are some of the greatest dangers to women in our society when they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Peter's not naive. The Bible's not naive. It sees, it knows, this is a scary idea. This is a scary concept that comes with a lot of risk from the woman. So even if it's not scary in a physically threatening way, it's still a scary concept though, right? I mean, have you met your husband? This is the guy that you have to submit to? I mean, even the the emperor, the president, there's usually enough distance there that you can assume that they're competent. They have people whose whole job is to create a finely honed image that makes sure that you don't see them as a moron, some more or less than others. But your husband doesn't have that. 
Your husband is whoever he is, whatever he is. I mean, just think about my wife. I, I didn't know until I got married that you weren't supposed to eat the red lining around bologna. I'm allergic to it now, and I always thought it was gross, but the reason I thought it was gross was because I thought that red lining was so disgusting. We, she bought it one day and made a sandwich with it and took it off, and I said, oh, that's, that's a good idea. I never thought to do that. She said, what do you mean? It's not there. It's not supposed to be there. You're supposed to peel that. I said, oh, maybe that's why I didn't like bologna. I had no idea. I just thought it was part of the thing. It's all made up anyway. They just mash it together. Why is the red part not edible, but the rest of it is? Okay, that is the guy that my wife has to submit to. That she has to love and honor and serve. That she has to follow as he tries to lead her. And I would like to think, at least, that I'm smarter than a lot of guys. So if this, your husband, is who you really have to submit to, I I think that's a scary idea. Sarah submitting to Abraham, that was scary. He wasn't perfect by any means. He did some particularly dumb stuff. Okay, he put her in danger multiple times. He even asked her to sin, and she had to figure out how to navigate through all of that in faithfulness to God, even as she was trying to submit to her husband. So Peter's example acknowledges how scary this could be. But God here is asking wives to do that which is scary. He's asking you to have the courage to be obedient, to have the courage to submit. He's saying that the Christian life, which is submission to him all the way through, is lived out when you fear the Lord and obey him rather than fearing the things that might be frightening in this life. Wives, submit to God so that you might save your husband. Focus on the inward identity, that which God cares about, and do that which is fearful because that's what God has called you to do. And husbands, you be understanding. That's the next point on mutual service in Christian marriage. Husbands, be understanding. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, you probably notice here that the wives, they got six verses of instruction, but the husbands, they only get one. It's actually pretty normal in Scripture. God tends to focus more on the aspect of direct service, direct submission, rather than on leadership or power. I think we as humans, we just as by our nature, need more instruction on how to be unselfish, how to serve, how to submit in the way of Christ than we do on how to assert our own wants, our own desires. We tend to have no problem in trying to get our own way. But also, if you remember Peter's context, he's talking to Christians who aren't the societal elites. What to do with power and leadership, that wasn't really something they had to worry about so much. But yet he begins in the same way that he did with wives. He says, likewise. So there's something that's still being said here about service, about being subject to someone else. Now, we can't take that too far to say that you can just gender swap all these ideas. But I think if our minds jump to wives, do what husbands say and husbands tell wives what to do, then I think we're missing something here. Evidently, even the husband's leadership and headship role, it's an act of service. It's how he is subject to his wife, how he loves and leads her. He helps her by leading her. He serves her by leading her well. 
And because he's commanded to do these things, it's not merely his wife who he's serving, it's ultimately God. Just as the wife doesn't just submit to the husband, she ultimately submits to God. So the husband doesn't just lead his wife, he ultimately submits to God. He has to learn how to lead one by exercising right authority and submit to the other by obeying his commands. And the first command given to husbands in this verse is to live with your wives in an understanding way. He's telling husbands, yeah, you may be the leader, but you are not the dictator. You are not the ultimate authority here. We'll see that in a second. You have to take her into account as you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. You need to know, you need to take into account and understand that she has been asked to do something that is fearful. You need to know that you have limits on what you are capable of and that she has strengths that can help you as you do what you're doing. You need to be the one to adjust based on the reality of the situation rather than holding to your own way as if it's the gospel. Okay, part of what makes the, the best college basketball coaches so good is that they don't rely on a specific system of play to be good. They don't run the same exact offense every year, regardless of who's on the team. They might recruit toward a specific style that they prefer, but they're going to adjust based on their personnel that they have. They just focus on good fundamentals, and they look at what they've got, and they de- determine the type of offense they're going to run. And that looks different if their team is filled with shooters or athletes. You see, they have to coach in an understanding way. They can't force them to do something that they're not equipped to do. Men, husbands, you have to lead your wife in an understanding way. The verse says to live with her in an understanding way. It's Peter's version of happy wife, happy life. Okay, you have to live with this woman. If you make her miserable, of what benefit is that to you? When I'm discussing headship and submission with couples in premarital counseling, I usually say at one point, because the husband is the head and the wife submits, yes, I do think whenever push comes to shove on big, important things, I think you have to do what the husband decides. But I think it's one of the primary roles of the husband in marriage to never let push come to shove, to never get to the point where he has to say, this is what we're doing. And because I'm the one who leads and you're the one who submits, we're doing what I say. Okay, you've probably lost if you have to get to that point. So husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. But husbands also handle her carefully. That's the the fifth point on mutual service in Christian marriage. Husbands, handle her carefully. Still in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, I have to do a little explaining here about the the weaker vessel thing. Because sometimes you'll hear people refer to women as the weaker sex with a clearly negative connotation. In fact, it's hard for our brains to hear the word weak without anything positive associated with it. We hear weak and we assume bad. But God doesn't see it that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 say this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, he chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish. He wants the one with the lowly birth, with the lesser power. So we hear weak and we think bad. But God hears weak and says, mine. So we can't hear a weaker vessel and apologize for it or wish Peter had used a different word. So if when he says weaker vessel, it doesn't mean lesser, then what does he mean? Well, I think we need to look at the, the whole phrase here. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. So within the sentence, part of how you live with your wife in an understanding way is by showing her this type of honor. So this isn't so much a statement on women in general as it is a statement on how women should be handled in marriage. The way that you take your wife into account to live with her in an understanding way is by showing her this type of honor. And the type of honor you're supposed to show her is the honor that you would show to a weaker vessel. So it's a subtle distinction here that I want to try to draw out if I can. Yes, within the analogy, there is a sense in which women equals weaker vessel. That there's a sense in which that's true. However, what he's actually saying is that the way you would handle a weaker vessel is how you should handle a woman. So let me try to make that a little bit clearer for you. In a similar way, I could say, handle your newborn baby like you would a landmine. Okay, you need to be careful where and how you grab it. You need to keep it in a certain orientation. And there are pretty severe consequences if you do that wrong, if you don't do that correctly. But in reality, newborns and landmines, they're really not that similar, are they? So we don't have to hear a weaker vessel and think that Scripture says women are fragile or less than. In fact, if Peter is saying anything about women as weak at all, he's alluding to physical weakness, something that's just generally true, right? So husbands need to take that into account because long before we get to any territory of abuse, just your physicality and strength, that can be intimidating and scary to the woman that you call your wife. Peter's not saying that women are weaker just across the board, but he is saying that the husband should live with her in an understanding way by showing her honor, by handling her as one would a weaker vessel, as one would fine china. Okay, no one gets that frustrated with china for being delicate. It's delicacy. That's a feature of it. It's part of what drives its value but you do have to be careful how you handle it. So husbands, handle her carefully. You should see them as your equal, Peter says. That's the sixth point on mutual service in Christian marriage. Husbands, see them as equals. Still in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So you lead and they submit. That's absolutely true. But as that's happening, you have to remember that they're right beside you in the Christian life, not behind you, not beneath you. Okay, they have the same grace that you have. They're getting the same inheritance that you are. They are no more or less Christian than you. So you have to see them as your equals, even as you try to lead them. That was theoretical knowledge for me until I got married, until I really got married and became a pastor. 
the idea of leading people was kind of foreign to me. I didn't really have that many opportunities to do it. The one context in which I had ever really led was when I was an eighth grade math teacher. And in that context, it was, I'm the teacher, they're the students. I'm an adult, they're eighth graders. I say they're supposed to do. That's how it's typically supposed to work. We just were not equals in the classroom. You all are my equals in the faith. My wife is my equal in our marriage. In a lot of ways, she's superior to me in our marriage. So I now had to find ways to lead even those who are equal and maybe superior to me in so many respects. That's hard. That's not easy. But it's important that the one with the leadership remembers this idea as he leads. You have to see them as equals because they are. And finally, husbands, this matters for you spiritually. That's the final point on mutual service in the Christian life. Husbands, this matters for you spiritually. The end of verse 7. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I said earlier that it feels a little uneven here, that wives had six verses of instruction, but husbands, they only get one. However, this one is what reminds us of the difference between the loving headship and submission in a Christian marriage and the submission expected in all those other realms. You see, the, the emperor, he didn't get much instruction in how to govern. The master didn't get much instruction in how to oversee his slaves. But the husband, he's given some pretty clear, some pretty forceful instructions for how to lead his wife. Husbands, this matters for you spiritually. There is no such thing as a Christian man who is strong in his faith, who is also a bad husband. You cannot be the stalwart man in the community that everyone thinks you are if you don't deal with your wife in an understanding way. You can't be holy as God is holy if you don't handle her carefully. And you cannot be a sexist misogynist and also an example of the faith. The way that you treat your wife has a direct impact on your relationship with God. If you fail to follow through on these things, Peter says that your prayers are hindered in some sense. He says that God himself will choose to ignore you when you speak to him. That your petitions are going to fall on deaf ears. If you can't pray, how do you expect to repent? If you can't pray, how do you expect to obey what God has commanded? If you can't pray, how do you think you can do really anything else? And if you fail your wife, these prayers may not be getting through. I think Peter's saying that for the Christian man who's married, the first area of your life that needs to receive your focus, your care, your intentional grace-driven effort to be more like Christ is your marriage. So if you want to be better at theology, love your wife first. You want to be more generous, understand her better. You want to evangelize more, handle her carefully. And I think we'll find as we pursue these things together that the rest of the Christian life starts falling into place behind us as we walk this road together. So wives, submit to your husband so that he might be saved. Be easy to love so that his prayers aren't hindered. Focus on the internal, that which is pleasing to God, even if your husband can't be pleased with what's external. Have the courage to submit, even though it's a scary thing. And husbands, don't let it be such a scary thing. Live with her in an understanding way. It's actually really easy to submit to someone like that. Handle her carefully, showing her the honor she deserves, focusing on her value rather than her weakness, as you see it. Remember that she's your equal, especially in the moments where you're the leader, because it would be so easy for you to forget that. 
And know that you can't live the Christian life without her once you've married her. So pray that God will grant you the grace to allow you to do all these things, and then your next prayer may not be hindered. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your people, to read your word, to hear it together. Thank you for the encouragement of so many people in this room who are doing these things. Thank you for their example. Thank you for the grace you've given us in giving us these commands. But God, help us where we fail. We fail so much and so often in all these things. Help us know that your grace is sufficient even for our weakness in these things. Help us to keep pursuing your design even when it's hard even when it's scary. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.